You're listening to Karma Radio here in Alice Springs. A new book released this month explores the possibilities of First Nations people standing ground against a colonised society and the barriers it puts up for First Nations people in this country. Professor Chelsea Watergo is a Professor of Indigenous Health at the Queensland University of Technology and a writer in many literary journals and academic publications. Uh, she's been writing for many a year, and she joins us here on Karma Radio. Weta, Professor Wadago, thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me. Could you maybe tell us about who you are and your mob, please? I've already given you a bit of an introduction, but, you know, tell us about where you're from and your mob. Yeah, sure thing. So I'm a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman for the Wadago and Williams families, um, uh, mostly around southeast Queensland. I was born and raised on Yuggera country. Um, a mum of five kids and, and home for us uh, and our family is in the outer suburbs of Brisbane in a very staunch black community of Anala. I've trained as an Aboriginal health worker um, and went on to become an academic um, working in health but have been forced to, to work in the space of, of race and racism because of the, the way in which it bears so heavily at uh, upon our bodies as blackfellas in this place. Your book is called Another Day in the Colony, and I was wondering if we could start off with the title. Um, Can you maybe explain it? I understand that there's an online context to it all, and, um, I mean, for those who may not be aware of what it means, could you maybe explain it for our listeners? Sure. So it's a a hashtag that came out of Blackfella Twitter that is used to describe the everydayness of colonial violence that we experience. So basically it rejects the idea that we're in a post-colonial society, that colonisation is not something that happened in 1788 but something that continues to happen every day. And so it's a way for for blackfellas to name it and to know that what we experience, our supposed disadvantage, um, is not a result of our lack or our failing but is the result of a system working exactly how it was designed. And blackfellas use this in all kinds of ways, in humorous ways to kind of laugh off some of the absurdities that we have to experience, um, but also to name and call out the, the everyday violence that blackfellas experience too. Is it a recent term? I'd be keen to hear about the history of it. Yeah, look, I can't remember exactly. I probably could go back through the Twitter timelines, but uh, quite a few years ago now, I was talking to a sister, um, Dr. Melinda Mann, a staunch Aboriginal and South Sea woman, and, and I remember saying the phrase, and she's like, that's a hashtag. And it's just taken off over the years and um, shifted not just something that's used on Twitter, but just every day blackfellas are using, oh, well, another day in the colony, in, in quite sarcastic ways, you know. Uh, it's, it's just something that really captures captures what we experience in this place. Now, your book, Another Day in the Colony, contains some fantastic essays drawing on your experience through your work in academia and the colonisation of those fields. Um, I was very intrigued to hear about you and your work within the academia field and what it was like uh, to be a part of that system. Um, What what was it like to write about those experiences on page? quite freeing. Um, I wrote the book at a time where I was probably at my darkest place. I had to take a period of uh, leave from 
uh, work and, and the other fun things I was doing. I used to do a radio show called Wild Black Woman. Um, I had to take time out um, because my body just um, had had enough and I was in the midst of two race discrimination cases at the time, one against the Queensland Police Service for an arrest and assault and custody that I experienced and the other against my employer, the University of Queensland. And so there was a lot going on and I felt compelled to write about it and think about it. I never had an aspiration to be an academic. I became one through the encouragement of others, but also because working as an Aboriginal health worker, I was frustrated with trying to convince people of our humanity in the course of just trying to be of service to my own community. And I wanted to change the way in which we were thought about, talked about. And, and that knowledge is, is not just, you know, a few bad apples, a few racist people. It's actually produced within the academy. And, and it has a whole weight of authority. And I wanted to contest that account of us. Um, and what I found and what I show in the book is that it's, you know, it doesn't matter the evidence base we bring to the settlers about what they do or how the systems fail us. Um, they'll find ways to silence us and um, to keep things working as they should. And that's, I write about the experience of having, you know, journal articles rejected because someone may appear racist, um, you know, like we can't even even theorise about this stuff. So I have a love-hate relationship with the academy, I guess. I'm not an academic because I believe in the institution necessarily, but it's it's a battleground that I think as blackfellas we have to fight on along with so many other battlegrounds that we're all fighting on on any given day. Do you think we've changed in those attitudes through, I suppose not at an academia level, but I suppose when I was reading your book, I was thinking about all levels of education, especially to even maybe a high school or even a primary school level uh, in terms of exploring or telling black stories uh, without without fear or favour, uh, uh, labelling someone as a racist. Do you think that those attitudes resonate through those, those levels uh, throughout all ages? Um, I'm, I don't think um, attitudes have changed necessarily in terms of progress of getting better. They may have changed in how they're articulated of how they espouse racist ideologies. They've become more sophisticated at being racist, so it looks less obvious, but it's still there. And in the book, I use a lot of examples of my own kids coming through the schooling system and the way in which they are taught to know themselves in the most violent of ways. Um, you know, from one of my children having to role play being a pastoralist and being, um, and, and uh, you know, uh, trying to sympathise with the settler standpoint as though that isn't how we've already been taught. And so I just think that the settlers have become better at visiting their racism upon us. And the idea of the book and those, those telling those stories is to reveal how it's operating and to show it up for what it is. And that's why we say another day in the colony is that every day is, is there's a seamlessness to what these fellows are doing here. And yes, there's change, but it's not progress. It's the same old story being told over and over again. And so some people might think that's pessimistic, but my argument is, is that in telling the truth about this place, we may strategize better as black fellows and not buy into the lies that they tell about themselves and about us. You talk about it not being change, um, not being progress, but change. I'd like to get your insight as to what progress is. Then, I don't believe in a settler colonial state that there is such a thing as progress. If you think about the wins that we've made, they're always wound back. You know, we had in the seventies introduction of the Race Discrimination Act, but it's been suspended three times in this country, and every time in relation to blackfellas and to land. 
that we have this illusion of progress, but in reality, they still have control. And anything that's that's one, you see how the system then changes to deny us of it. You know, when 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 them mob of blackfellas won um, against Andrew Bolt, look what happened after that. A big debate about winding back that legislation to change it because suddenly it worked for us. So my argument is it's, it's they're always... Um, the settlers are not going home, so we're always going to be bound up in this relationship with them. And and the book is really a call to maintain the front line and keep up the fight and not buy into their lies um, about this place and their relationship to us. You've spoken already about your children, and in the book you, you do talk about an experience your, uh, about one of your children and a drawing that she gives to her school um, yeah. about her family where you reflect on the idea about the types of stories your young ones are uh, are meant to tell and please correct me if I'm, I've got that wrong but I'd yeah, like no, to that's... yeah I'd like to get an idea about how much that this does this say about the knowledge of young ones place in this in in the colony well I guess what was so this picture was one of my children were in grade two at the time and it was harmony day and they had to draw a picture of their culture um, and Harmony Day is really the, it's the International Day of Elimination of Race Discrimination. But here in Australia, they call it Harmony Day and celebrate culture. They don't talk about race, which is, that in itself is telling about this place. But so she had to draw a picture of her culture. And what she did is she drew me and my, my husband um, and the children um, outside of Ganya with boomerangs and spears. And um, what was interesting is that she didn't draw us outside of our home in Anala. Um, she knew that when they asked a cultural story of her, that there was a particular kind of story to tell. And it was one that didn't locate her in the home that she grew up in. And what was, what was interesting for me is she has two black parents. She lives in a very proud black community and, and, you know, exposed to some fairly sophisticated conversations at our kitchen table around, you know, identity and stuff. But yet at, at the age of seven knew that cultural story and um, I juxtaposed that drawing with the, the um, promotional poster for that movie Jeddah and it's almost identical and she's never seen the movie or that poster. So how is it that she came to know herself in that way? And, and these are the kind of you know, questions I get uh, more thinking about is how we come to know ourselves and as a black fella, as an academic most of the accounts written by us are not written about us are not by us and so we're still required to fulfill these colonial fantasies about the authentic aborigine never can know ourselves in the here and now as as human as as you know as who we know ourselves to be and so the other part of this in terms of writing this book i wrote it for blackfellas mm. to be in conversation with blackfellas exclusively for that very reason also and i wanted to explore that idea of telling black stories for blackfellas and wanting to be a part of a i suppose in a way writing growth for black audiences as well uh, and uh, well why is that important to you well you know um i mean for, are there, there are obvious yeah. there are obvious reasons yeah, yeah. but for, for you personally well, I, I grew up hearing black stories in my own home, you know, as black as we do. And then you, lead, you, you step outside your front door and you see accounts of us that don't line up with the stories we know of ourselves. Mm. And those stories told about us are so violent, um, are so inaccurate. And um, they've always claimed the position of knowing us better than we can know ourselves. You know, th that the anthropologist has the weight of authority in deciding who has a legitimate claim to land 
tells us something about the functional defections of settlers. Like it has a dispossessing function. And what I wanted to do is return to, to our own stories. And um, I don't cite a ton of academics in this book. I, I go back to yarns I've had with mob, our conversations, these moments as a, as a way of um, remembering who we are and our own ways of being. And there's something, what's been really um, exciting for me is how mob have responded to the book because they can see themselves um, in all of our beauty and our joy. You know, this is not a misery memoir. Uh, uh, and um, so I've loved what the work is doing for black readers in reminding us of um, how amazing, how staunch and how sovereign we are every day amongst all of the stuff we have to experience. There's an amazing, rich uh, amount of blackfellas writing here in the Northern Territory. I'd like to get your perspective as as someone who, if there's an audience in First Nations literature, literature going, growing in, in your space. Well, absolutely. I mean, my book can't be found on suburban bookshelves, um, but we went to reprint on the day of shipping and then a week later went into a second reprint. And that's not because mainstream media bought into it. That's because blackfellas have shared on the Instagram stories and Facebook and social media. And it's blackfellas that are, that are pushing this book, you know, which goes to show there is a market there. You know, we want to read about ourselves. We will buy books um, and borrow them and steal them um, from each other. But, you know, like we want to read about ourselves. We want our kids to read our account of, of, of us. And that's the thing that frustrates me is that in, you know, in the publishing world, they know that the people who tend to buy books are white women. And what you'll find is a lot of authors um, will pander to that market will sell to that market and will be thinking of that white reader when they're writing. Um, I was very clear, and I say it up front in the book, I was thinking of blackfellas reading this book in terms of the language I use. There was no footnotes explaining our way of being. If you get it, you get it. I was, and, and I had to fight to, to, and I had to defend that too. Like it wasn't so easy. Like I got free reign. I had to make a case and I insisted on every chapter that there was going to be a happy ending that we deserve in the accounts that we tell of ourselves. Yeah, and it's more or less how blackfellas tell their stories as well. Uh, you know, it's oral. Yeah. Yeah, like it's not, it's, yeah. it's how we should um, understand the way stories are told. Uh, in in First Nations communities in this country, it's not about always footnotes, and not about always. I suppose, in a way, you could argue that the art, if you want to call it an art, of academic writing in itself is a colonised <laughs> uh, construct in in a way. And I suppose uh, there's always that fine balance there of trying to figure out whether writing in in that kind of way is the right way. Does that make sense to you? Uh- Absolutely. And I think it's looking at, you know, um, sort of Western knowledge system versus Indigenous knowledge systems where I remember Ian Anderson once saying, um, he wrote about um, that our right to tell a story is earned by explaining our relationship to that story. And I've had in interviews where they say, oh, you give so much of yourself. How do you feel about, you know, sharing so much of your story? And I'm like, well, I have to. It's showing the workings of how I came to know. And it also, in telling those stories, shows the limitations of my knowing. Um, and that's what we have to do as blackfellas. We can't like claim to know and possess and take something that doesn't have a relationship with. And so um, I, I'm modelling the way in which we know, how, you know, how we come to know and how we share that knowledge. And it is a shared thing. Like um, the the um, leadership and mentorship I had from the likes of Arnie, Dr. Lilla Watson, Uncle Shane Coggle, senior people who who read the book and were in conversation with me and 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 shaped the thinking of it. It's relational. 
we come to know through being in conversation with each other, not because of the text we've read and how articulately we can, you know, espouse someone else's theories from another place. This is what it means to be grounded in our own knowledge system, in our own ways of, our ways of doing. And um, it was really freeing to just think about um, and to, to write on, on our own terms to, to my own people without having to worry about, well, will I, will I educate white fellas and will they get it? I just I abandoned that task because so much of our work is always having to foreground white sensibilities in order to just tell the truth about, about our social world that we live in. Chelsea, you talk about in this book going away from hope to endure in the colony mm. and, and victimhood should be thrown away and whether you're Arundar, Yugambeh, people from all nations across these lands should speak from a place of power. Why is it to you essential to come from that place rather than hope? Yeah, so I, I argue for abandoning hope as a strategy for, for living and I just think because hope has betrayed us so often and I've seen too many blackfellas broken um, coming to, having come to the realisation um, that the stories they tell, their institutions, were a lie. And so um, people might think that that's a terrible place to be and it's, you know, for me it's a freeing place. Um, if you know the truth about the world, we can strategize better. And so when I call for the retiring of hope in its place, I argue that we must be sovereign. And, you know, hope is something that sits with someone else in their verdicts, in their decisions, in their adjudication. But when we are sovereign, it, the power sits with us because we remember who we are and where we come from and we make our decisions on that basis. And I tell some just everyday yarns about how blackfellas are, are being sovereign and letting go of the idea of winning or losing. And I... I came to this because I was sitting with Annie Lilla Watson and I was in the midst of these fights on these race discrimination cases and I felt, this was the time I felt strong and I was going to win the case. And she said to me, what do you mean by winning? She says, when you operate on their terms, you've already lost. But when you operate on, on your own terms, you, you then realise you know more than they ever can. And so for me, it was uh, such a realisation to let go of vesting my power into uh, colonial institutions and because they're always stacked against us and instead remember it is to be sovereign and that means redefining what winning means and um, if winning requires us to forget who we are and where we come from then we have lost. Um, so so, does so we... yeah it's, a, it's an interesting proposition that people kind of struggle with a bit but it's dealing with the truth of this place and I grew up in a house where we were taught to be 10 times better to break even mm. that if we worked hard enough that we could prove our humanity and I was trained as an academic that if I just produced the evidence base then we could affect change and what I've come to realise in all of those essays and stories and what I tell is it doesn't matter how good we are they're never going to stop doing what they're doing mm. so what is our choice then? Maybe we'll, maybe we'll um, strategise how best to, where to put our labour and not exhaust it upon systems and institutions and peoples who refuse to see our humanity. And you know, if you think about what happens in our communities, there's the evidence base. They know the solutions to fix any problem in our community and they're not doing it. Ten years of failed close the gap policy and what did they do? They just refreshed it. You know, like yeah. they know what so they're doing. I mean, I'm not going to suggest that this is a solution, but the best way to move forward from that kind of idea of winning is to kind of just simply um, 
can't really think of the right term. B is that the right term? Maybe yeah, or it's B? Yeah, being. Yeah, and it's because I, I used to have people like oh, I get people all the time ring me up with something they're dealing with, you know, racism or the, you know, at the school, and and so people say, well, have you got some readings I can take, and mm. I need some evidence to, to to you know argue with the school about what they're doing to my kid, and I said, you, you actually don't need that. You just need to turn up. And as black fellas, what does it mean to turn up every day? in our being and not not worrying about trying to appeal to or appeal appease the settlers and one of the stories at the end of the book and and, and there's a joy in 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 being sovereign um that people i think that people miss out on that the joy of of when we are sovereign and those beautiful moments and i tell the story of a sister in my own community who who quit her job because she was just they would refuse to let her advance despite her best efforts and refuse to give her an interview even to apply for a job and they said they'd be wasting their time. And um, she walked in and she retells the story and I tell the story of her retelling the story about how she quit. And she did it in the blackest fashion of all. She went off at everybody, no shame. And, you know, she walked out of there with her dignity intact, her sovereignty unseated. And the following day she walked in and got a reference from that same employer. And there's a beauty in those moments that we refuse their account of us and we refuse to to bow down to them. Chelsea, you mentioned earlier that your book has already sold out of its um, first print run of copies. Uh, it must and be, second. Yeah, and second. Oh, wow. Awesome. It must be yeah. awesome to know that there's many people interested in reading these oh, it's, set it's of so verses. Blackfellas on socials posing up with the book. Like, <laughs> it's, and it's blackfellas that are buying this book. That's the yeah. thing that really uh, makes me proud. And I understand that you held an event... I think it was last week I saw on NITV uh, <laughs> celebrating this book as well. I was hoping maybe get your insight about how that event went. Yeah, well, we didn't just have a launch for a book. We had a launch party and we had 200 blackfellas on a rooftop in Mianjin. And um, it wasn't that wasn't about, um, you know, celebrating the book. It was about embodying the idea one of the ideas in the book. And so there was a dress code that was unmitigated blackness. And it's a stage of blackness that Paul Beattie in The Sellout speaks of. And to me, it just captures this idea of what it is to be sovereign. And so, yeah, Biggest Mob turned up and just celebrated being black. And, um, you know, and as much as that we're, we're caught up in the daily fight for justice, we too must also reclaim our right for joy. And that's what we did. Lastly, I'd just like to get an idea about what would you like readers to take away from your book once they read your essays and your experiences? I think the only other thing, it's like I share my own stories um, and, and conversations I have with other mob and I'm not trying to universalise my experience. What I hope the book does is empowers and enables um, other blackfellas to be in conversation with each other, to tell um, their own stories on their terms because I remember... Um, uh, elder and scholar, um, Dr. Annie Mary Graham, um, uh, talking about years ago in a forum about the need for us to describe ourselves to each other. Um, and I think when we put out the mirror up to ourselves, we really are beautiful, um, powerful, and we we are reminded of that when we tell our stories on our terms. Professor Chelsea Watergo, thank you very much for talking to us here at Karma. Thank you for having me.